This is Beyond the Bell Tower, where an elite group of North Carolina State University students give us a behind-the-scenes look at their steps to success. These students, who are in the top 10% of the country, are active in student support services at NCSU. These students are low-income and first-generation college students. Nationally, this population has a 10% graduation rate. Here at NC State, these students have a graduation rate of over 90% and go on to become doctors, dentists, accountants, and engineers. They work at Google, Apple, and the NCAA. Some have even earned PhDs at Ivy League colleges. These students go well beyond the bell tower to attain their eminent goals. So we are excited to have uh, Kalia Phillips with us today. Yes. How many more days do you have as a student at North Carolina State University? I graduate in five more days. Ooh. Um, so do you remember your first five days on campus? I do not. Not too well. I did summer start before freshman year, so it's all a bit of a blur. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you started TRIO that first semester. Did you yes. join in summer start? No. So I was a Pack Promise scholar originally and then um I saw Courtney at I think it was the last dollar scholarship it was like some sort of reception happening and she met me she was just like are you in trio I was like no she was just like I'm gonna get you a trio application (laughs) so I'm just like okay (laughs) so I applied for it I got in so a good portion of my first semester I would say Mm -hmm. yeah and then were you in ROTC then did you start out ROTC? Yeah, I was kind of like, I guess, a walk on for the program. Um, but I started ROTC like the beginning of the semester. So I didn't have like a scholarship going into it or anything. I just sort of um, signed up for the class and went to the class. And why would you want to do that? <laughs> Sorry. <sighs> there was a time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I just know most people do it for the scholarship. But if you did JROTC in high school. Yeah, so I tried to to like get the scholarship while I was in high school Mm -hmm. um but some things didn't happen some wires got crossed or something like that Mm -hmm. um and then my my um attempt to walk on was so that I could get a a scholarship um and I I almost had it but things didn't work out that way so Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I had a plan (laughs) (laughs) it just failed (laughs) well don't they all (laughs) that's what they say there's no plans that totally work out. Um, so there's a um, couple of things that we definitely want to talk about because your path beginning, that's what I was trying to start in the beginning, like your first semester at NC State and now your last semester of NC State are completely, not completely, but very different. Indeed it, they are. <laughs> yes. And so going back to that, like the plan, um, i pretty sure – you had no idea what you're doing now was even a possibility. Yeah, not at all. Mm-hmm. was not even within the scope of what I had originally wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, can you tell us about um, what you're doing after NC State and how that all, like, came about? Yeah, so I will start off by saying if people who know me know that I will graduate with, with a degree in accounting, um, it's something that I sort of have planned, once again, going back to that planning thing, um, since I was about 10. Like, there were two things I felt like I was going to do, get a degree and go into the Air Force. Um, not because I was like, yay, America, or anything like that. I just wanted someone to pay for my degree. <laughs> yes, very smart. So, And also, I wanted to travel, and I felt like the Air Force would have given me the opportunity to do that. Um, so, And where are you from? 
I'm from Rocky Mount, North Carolina, born and raised. Oh. Um, and you hadn't traveled a lot? No. Before. I mean, I've been to, like, different states, but never outside of the country before I got to NC State or anything like that. Mm. We didn't. We don't have that kind of money, so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, um, I took some accounting classes when I was in high school, got A's in them, felt like, okay, I could do accounting. It's fine. Um, plus, I knew that I could make a lot of money in it. Um, every business, whatever, nonprofit, government, all those things, like every profession needs an accountant. Um, so I feel like I, sh- if I were to be out of a job, I wouldn't be out of a job for too long. Um, and nope. there, there was this overall like financial security piece to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I was going to say accountants have like the least um, unemployment rate, I think, of like any profession. Yeah, it's pretty like they have a good system. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I think that's the thing is like picking a major in which it gar- literally guarantees you a job. Yeah. So that was very smart on your part, for sure. Yeah, a lot of things I did that was smart that had nothing to do with, uh, you know, my heart, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. which is... Uh, we were getting to different things. But I think that for me, coming to the realization that um, I chose this major out of fear of being homeless or just without some sort of financial security. My folks, I mean, I'm from a low-income family in Rocky Mountain, so didn't want to repeat some of the same mistakes that they had done in their life. And so while I do appreciate those lessons, I kind of wanted to sing a different tune. Um, and so there was like that literal fear, like I'm going to fail if I don't <laughs> do this one degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've had a bit of a mental breakdown around junior year because I was just like, I don't like this at all. <laughs> like I can do it. Um, the work itself is not too hard. It's just a matter of, do I want to come to work every day and do this work? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so with your fear and you said you're f- fearful of, um, being homeless, was that a real fear? at the time or I've told people was... that and people consider it to be an irrational fear given how hard I work no um, I mean but yeah it's like if you've had past experiences or you've known people no I've I've never had like we've never been like homeless homeless like we've been without for a little bit but we've never been like on the street mm-hmm. that type of homeless mm-hmm. um but Were I you, have like doubled up were you sharing homes with other, like, family or... Um, for a small period in my grandma's apartment, mm-hmm. um, that was a thing. But mm-hmm. it, it didn't last for too long. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have been evicted before, but I didn't even know that was what happening. Right. But, um, but yeah, right. that was... But, I, you know, I think that's sometimes is where people who don't have the same experiences, and so when you say something like that and they think you are being irrational, but... M- Maybe it's not. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, obviously, um, you're probably the chances of you actually being in that same situation are, you know, greatly decreased. But if you've seen it happen before, if you've experienced it before, it's not as irrational. Yeah. Because sometimes I think people dismiss that. It's like, oh, you're just being crazy. Yeah. I've um, I've had people tell that. Like, someone told me that my teacher actually told me that in high school. I was just like, I just have, like, this fear of, like, not making or being homeless. He was just like, that's a bit of an irrational fear because you work too hard for that. But it was just like, also, I have this thing where I'm not arrogant to, too arrogant to think that um, everything's going to work out and it's going to be fine. Like, there are people who have been at the top and ended up at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that can happen, like, overnight. Yeah. Um, so I am i don't, you know, 
consider it to be an irrational fear. It's, a, it's something that can definitely happen to anyone. It's just a matter of how do you sort of move forward through that sort of struggle process. Yeah, and working hard doesn't prevent it from happening. Right. You know, where they sound like, oh, you work. You know, there's a lot of people who work. Right. There are a lot of people hard. with degrees that are homeless. Mm-hmm. So it's not like an unprecedented thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, because anyways, I just wanted to, because I know, I'm sure some students who have fears that they would never vocalize mm-hmm. because of what they fear, you know, another of how somebody would um, respond to that. But but I think that's the piece is like, if it's a real fear to you, mm-hmm. then it's valid. You know, especially, yeah, talk about it. I mean, especially with TRIO, it's that that's um, what we're here for. Um, you know, and we, it's important that you, yeah, address it. So how did you address your fears? Uh, I don't know if I've done that. Um, <laughs> I kind of just try to take it day by day and sort of face it head on and, and try to, if if nothing else, try to make it authentic to who I am. Um, and that never really feels like a fearful situation. It just feels like I'm just living my life every day. Right. Um, so that's like sort of a different approach I'm taking rather than feel like I have this obligation to do this thing to these people. Um, right. And that's that's way too much stress on me. Right, right. Yeah, no, it's when you're um when it's not just you, it's a family or a community then Yeah. And you're doing what they want. Um doesn't always work out well. <laughs> yeah, especially when it comes from cuz it's not like you know, I have like a father for like a doctor as a father and he's like you have to be a doctor because this is the family. It's not like he's you know, my family's, like, shoving this down my throat. But it comes from a place of love and wanting to make sure that I'm okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are also more than one way to be okay. And I don't think that we as a family have sort of moved through what it means to be okay in different ways. Right. Um, so it's it's a difficult—I mean, my mom is understanding of it. My dad was like, I just got dropped off, like, the other day. But my dad, he was just like, you're leaving a lot of money on the table. And I'm just like— <laughs> Thanks, Dad. (laughs) So it sounds like there's, like, some support in some regard, but also this, you know, still underlying fear that uh, what I'm embarking on might not be the type of money that is stable enough for them to be okay with what I'm doing. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, because that's the thing is, like, if we'll go into your, like, into public health that you're um, getting your graduate degree in, that is kind of like a new thing. Like nobody really knows, like accounting, everybody knows it. Yeah. Yeah. And family, having your family say, like, I think you're doing the wrong thing. Yeah. It's deep. Yeah. It. <laughs> and I mean, you know, like my, like I said, my mom is kind of like, oh, I kind of want to know more about this. Like, what are you doing? So, you know, it's kind of like, yay. And then my dad is like also a little bit supportive, but also mm-hmm. like fam like how are we gonna pay for this mm-hmm, <laughs> um mm-hmm. or not even like how are we gonna pay for this like what is this gonna look like once you graduate um right. which is always sort of that that parental um i guess they just want to know like if if is what you're doing in school gonna pay off in the end once right. you get out of it right so yeah and some of that's just like they they want you to be successful. They don't want you to have to worry. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, oh, she's going to go into accounting. She's not going to have to worry again. Like, she'll right. always have a job and she'll always, you know. And so then it's, you know, something new. Um, and it's like, what? Oh, no. <laughs> you know, because that was their plan, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So junior year, what happened? You had a breakdown, you said? Yeah, I had a bit of a mental breakdown. <laughs> um. <laughs> In what kind of way? Like a, 
just I don't know what I'm doing here or I felt like stress and yeah I felt stressed I felt overwhelmed um I was taking a lot of core classes um like accounting core classes yeah and it wasn't so much that I was doing terrible in them I was just like I just felt disconnected to what I was doing um and it felt bad because I felt guilty that in my head I was like sort of going back on my word of what I wanted to do um, and that was like a major internal conflict that I was having. I was like, oh, I'm about to disappoint all my family. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're never going to love me again. Or it wasn't that extreme, but, you know, it was just a lot. You know, all that burden on me was just a lot to, to handle at the time. And it's still, you know, a lot to handle. Um, it's just a matter of sort of how do I calm the folks down? Yeah. Well, and also <laughs> it was like changing directions from accounting to like um, public health, that's mm-hmm. a major change. Yeah. And so anybody that goes through that, whether you're, you know, 22 or 42, that is like any change is going to be stressful because that's what, you know, change is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then you, um, so why, and then how did you switch? Like you had this breakdown. Mm-hmm. You didn't like, you couldn't see yourself working as an accountant. Mm-hmm. So then what did you do? Um, so around that time, right, because I've been working at the Women's Center since my sophomore year. That first year, I wasn't super connected to the work that we were doing because um, I actually got the job through you. I don't know if you remember that Um, because Jennifer Castillo was still Mm -hmm. working there. Mm -hmm. Um, She's no longer there because she left to pursue uh, MSW. Um, But I got my job and it was just a job for me. Um, I didn't really interact with the staff as much. Um, and I just didn't know all of the feminist things that were happening. Right. Um, didn't really understand it. Wasn't really connected to it. And so, um, so I referred you to her. You did. Okay. <laughs> so I just need to say. Trio works. Oh, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I want to make that you uh, acted upon advice. Yes. <laughs> Cause I was like, I am broke. I also had like uh, two other jobs that semester too like that first semester of sophomore year so it was just like I was just all about getting my paychecks um uh moving into like junior year um I think I worked either over the summer I can't remember but moving into like the junior year there was also like staff lineup changes so some people left and some people were brought on board Angela Gay who's now the uh associate director she came on as a graduate assistant at first because she's a doctoral student um, she ended up getting like the full time position, but around that time she sort of like saw me and was just like, so what we're not going to do is just sit behind this desk and not contribute, um, mm-hmm. in like more critical ways. Um, and so her sort of taking me under her wing and she's like a ment- a- an amazing mentor, um, a dear friend, a shady buddy. Um, <laughs> that's like our inside joke. Everyone okay. knows I'm shady. It comes from love. <laughs> okay. But, um, people like her who sort of saw something in me that I didn't really think, uh, really mattered in the grand scheme of things. And so she and a bunch of other people sort of helped develop me into, I guess, a bit of a critical scholar. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was happening around the time that I was having like the mental breakdown about my major. Cause I just felt around the time super limited within accounting um because it's very like one two uh-huh. um but there is no room for like critical thinking and all those things and that's more so up my alley I like I do that on a regular basis yeah and you had um mentioned before to the comfort level mm-hmm. within um like your academic spaces um where you could 
like a part of your work was your actual identity. Mm-hmm. Like the work was personalized. Yeah, definitely. Um, just just like being in the classroom, I just felt like another body. Um, and like this is not to say that all black students within like PCOM feel this way. There may be people who can't like resonate with that. But I have a friend who, you know, she got opportunities through the same professor that we had um, to be like a TA and all those things. So it's, you know, I think for me, I just... It wasn't happening for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, two, like, opportunities that I, that I would get for, like, professional development or personal development. I wasn't getting that through PCOM. It's like mm-hmm. they sort of um, – I also felt, too, like, frustrated with the fact that I felt overlooked. Like, I would get all these interviews, but then, like, nothing would come of those. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it, it just felt like I was wasting my time. Right. Um, but I was, I was getting um, opportunities through TRIO and, like, through the Women's Center. So it was kind of like – I should go to where I'm wanted and not necessarily, Mm -hmm. like, force my way into something that doesn't really fit me and who I am. Yeah, and I think that's the piece that's um, kind of a weird situation. So we've had students who didn't get, um, like, their full-time accounting internships at, you know, like, the big-time firms Mm -hmm. until after they graduated. Yeah. And then they've been successful. Mm -hmm. But then the other piece, too, is is do you want to do something where – you're valued um and so yeah being overlooked or feeling invisible mm-hmm. or um yeah if you actually feel that yeah. rather than just going like oh i guess i you know i'll have to try again tomorrow yeah and i think too is like how you're not a person that you. gives up obviously yeah. so it's like <laughs> so i tried so hard <laughs> yeah, yeah well no i mean i think that's the thing is like it hit you deep mm-hmm. of not like that feeling it wasn't just like oh i couldn't get an internship so therefore i've got to do something different yeah and too like i didn't really i couldn't afford to not really have anything to do right because mm-hmm. i'm from rocky mountain low-income family so like i have to make things happen or else like i'm just not going to be seen and so um that too was like an, an added layer is like then I'm have to go home and there's nothing really there for me at home. So it's just like, well, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Um, and all those things was just, uh, it was so stressful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then what did you, so um, when Angela saw something more in you to get you more involved in the Women's Center, what did she see in you? Um, Someone who is a critical thinker, um, who is sort of open-minded enough to consider things from multiple perspectives and also to like um, integrate my personal experiences into how I understand the world around me and, and, you know, sort of develop from there, I guess. Um, I, I wish, I mean, she, she probably has like a whole letter about what she sees in me, but mm-hmm, <laughs> it's way more she, detailed oh, than what yeah, I yeah. gave. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So then what did you end up doing at the women's center when she brought you out? from behind the desk oh yeah i became more involved with like brainstorming different events um definitely like of course logistical things so like setting up a breaking down but um i became part of like the people who were sort of cultivating the the second women of color retreat um i did like a few feminist fridays presentations um I started participating more in Feminist Fridays. Uh, yeah, um, can you let us know what Feminist Fridays are? Yes. Yeah, so Feminist Fridays are uh, a reoccurring thing that we do at the Women's Center every Friday. Um, sometimes it's, the time changes based on how we're trying to get more people in. Uh, we've been kind of struggling with that lately. 
Um, but basically it's about an hour and people, you don't have to identify as a feminist to be, to participate. I want to stress that. Mm-hmm. Um, where people just sort of come in with like a topic or an issue and then we combine that with some sort of theoretical framework through which we can talk about it. Mm-hmm. And then we just have like this sort of facilitated discussion around that topic. And what was, um, I think you, one of your first ones was about athletes. Mm-hmm. Race, yeah. gender, and sports, the commodification, the appropriation of black bodies. Yes. <laughs> <Delicious>. <laughs> so what did you, um, so what was your favorite topic that you facilitated or you think people really um, resonated with them of all your Feminist Fridays that you facilitated? Um, I would say my favorite was the last one I did, which was Horrible Scholars, Sex Positivity for Black Women. That was my favorite one um, because it was directly related to the research that I had done the summer before, which we'll probably talk about later. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that was my favorite because, you know, I, I was like working on this and like I pulled things from my paper. And so it felt like, yeah, I get to talk about my stuff, even though I don't like to talk about myself often, but mm-hmm. I got to a, a chance to talk about something that I have been working on. But I think um, one of the feminist writers that I did that resonated with a lot of people was the second one that I did. Um, and it was around like the rider ride chick trope um, and how that sort of trope normalizes the abuse in black women. Yeah, so yeah. the concept of a rider ride chick um, typically is presented in like mainstream media or like hip hop culture and things of that nature. It's typically a black or Latino woman who um, they're in a relationship with a black man and um, it's usually some sort of drug and drugs involved. He's like usually a drug dealer or like maybe a rapper or something like that. Um, And whatever he asks her to to do, she sort of does it. She is like his backbone. Um, If he's like cheating with a lot of women, like she's still going to stay and all those things. So a lot of sort of toxic uh, things that you might see in a relationship becomes sort of amplified within this type of um, expectations of of black women, black and brown women. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's more than a power dynamic, like it's more than codependency, or yeah, you... yeah, that yeah, that's definitely a part of it. Sort of just like I don't, it's a lot of things. Um, yeah. So if I are, oh, if I were to do it again, it would definitely be like unpacked from like a different perspective in terms of like. Mm-hmm masculinity and like the expectations of that and how that sort of coincides with the expectations of a rider rat chick um but i only like just focused on like how that normalizes abuse on black women i kind of wanted to center that but mm-hmm. it's a lot <laughs> yeah 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 no and what was what um part of the discussion really resonated with people was it um, and so it started off with talking about black women, but I also think that people were sort of connecting it to the women in their lives um, who either were or weren't black women. And I think that um, for me, it was sort of like um, it's sort of the same thing, but it just has a different name in different communities and different cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, and too, like that that presentation itself, like had a lot of people that came um, that didn't just work in the center, but also like maybe came from the other center. Um, other centers or what have you and so it was like a, a bit of a packed house mm-hmm. um, so that was like wow people are coming to my things <laughs> yeah 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 no it's, uh, it feels good when people are interested in the same topics you are yeah oh are. and I also I can't forget this one I recently did one I did it with a friend of mine we kind of like co-facilitated we did one on is it a disadvantage so we were talking about uh, trans folks in sports mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and how that's like 
still a major controversy mm-hmm. um, within you know contemporary sports. Right, and how were what were the discussions about that? Um, we were just talking. So we kind of like brought it home um, about the bylaws and policies within state's campus mm-hmm. for like intramural sports, club sports, um, and like the NCAA, like the varsity sport, um, varsity athletic level right um because i have a few teammates i also play rugby um a few teammates that identify as Mm non-binary um and so i didn't even know there were bylaws not saying that they shouldn't be on the team right but i didn't i didn't even know there was like bylaws that sort of made it more inclusive for non-binary folks so i'm just like wow this is a thing and then too you have like people such as fallon fox who is like a retired mma fighter um who is a transgender woman and so Mm -hmm. she was born signed male at birth and then uh-huh. she transitioned when she was like in her 20s or something uh-huh. and undergo like un- or underwent like six years of hormone therapy or something like that had like the reassignment surgery and all those things um and so she fought like she was an mma fighter um and then there was like some fights where people just felt like she had more of an advantage so it got into like are there Super, like physical advantage. Yeah, yeah, and and it's like, are there like super large, you know, strength differences between male and female bodies? And then it's like, how is that complicated for folks that are like intersex? And it's just mm-hmm. a whole lot of things. Like yeah. we could not cover all the things we wanted to cover within that one hour. Um, but yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's um, it's another whole world. Yeah, that is opening them up. I mean, when you see the world is very binary like you're either one th- it's like if you're female it means you're not male yeah you know and mm-hmm. um that we want things to not be complicated mm-hmm. but people are complicated yes and people are you know and so as much as you try to make it not complicated you know and it's just mm-hmm. like nice try but <laughs> <laughs> you fit in this box <laughs> yeah you know it's like no we have to be responsive to the, the diverse people and their experiences mm-hmm. um etc yeah so now you said that one of your talks had to do with your research yes so would you like to go into your research yes um so the topic or the title of my research paper was um jezebel the virgin so it was a a critical it was a critique of the sex positive feminist movement and i sort of um wrote it within the context of what this means for her for higher education um and it basically unpacked like the different layers of what it sort of means to be at that time um a, a black woman that is a virgin um we're not going to talk about that because that's tmi but <laughs> <laughs> um but at that time i was sort of trying to come up with the project because I just got into the McNair program I just applied and all those things mm-hmm. and so that was like my my summer research thing mm-hmm. um and so I was trying to like figure out uh what I wanted to talk about like before I even started the project there was a feminist Friday by Abby I can't remember his, how to pronounce his last name but he just gra- well he's graduating this semester and from the sociology department um I think he'll be like a PhD Something mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he did one. It was, it was called uh, Critical Thoughts on Sex Positivity. And it was basically like the whole presentation was critiquing like the sex positive movement and how like the mainstream movement is very 
um, inclusive of, of white cisgender heterosexual women and uh-huh. doesn't really consider the experiences of marginalized folks or black women, uh-huh. um, fat people, disabled folks, all those things. Yeah, and it usually is middle class, upper middle class. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, people with privileges. Because sometimes I look at it, it's like um, people with the time. Yeah. <laughs> and the resources. <laughs> yes. You know, to have movements. Mm-hmm. You know, because if you're working three jobs, it's hard to lead a movement. Exactly. But, yeah. So it's like that movement thing is like it's comes out of privilege. Mm-hmm. So what did he say that um, um, inspired I mean, you? Yeah. I mean, just like the whole presentation itself um, was just amazing. And I never really thought about it in that sort of context. Um, I had heard of like the term sex positivity, but I didn't really know what it meant. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like him sort of giving the rundown and also saying, let's complicate this and see the gaps um, was also sort of. It sparked something in me, mm-hmm. um, and I, I sort of wanted to sign up and do it. Um, the original project that I had, um, it wasn't, I can't remember what it was about, um, but it was about, like, how people who are sexually active, like, shape what that means and how they sort of push that out for folks who, who aren't sexually active. And, mm-hmm. and it, it's kind of, it was kind of weird at the time. Uh, I definitely would have reworked it, but it ended up getting reworked. <laughs> um, to what it is now and uh-huh. sort of looked at what does it mean to be a black woman that aversion and what are the sort of the controlling imagery around that and so I definitely had to talk about the Jezebel archetype and caricature that still remains to be um, one and what's of the, the history of Jezebel the significance of that yeah, yeah. the Jezebel so um, it's, it started as an archetype and it became a caricature through like mass media cartoons and things of that nature. But it's basically, um, and it came about through slavery. Um, and it sort of led to the justification for the rape against black women. Um, because they sort of view, um, the African women that were enslaved as, um, like their, their deviance was related to their sexual promiscuity. So the Jezebel is essentially like a hypersexualized black woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's like a major controlling, um, trope on how black women are able to show up authentically within their sexual expression right 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 now how did you who did you have as mentors for your research because most people angelus okay yeah (laughs) i use air quotes most people they'll do their research within like their major Mm -hmm. and then they'll have a faculty member you know they've had before in a class Mm -hmm. to be their advisor like their research advisor so since you weren't doing research within management, yeah, how did you find a mentor? I worked with her. Um, <laughs> and also, too, like, they were, she was looking for someone to do research around something related, you know, mm-hmm. sort of, but not really. Um, but, and, and you know, she was a doc student, so um, she sort of got, was able to get approved as a mentor. Um, so, you know, the work that we do at the center is sort of aligned up with what I was um, sort of thinking about for a research project. Um, and so it just sort of happened through me just, you know, working. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I mean, I think that's important for other students to know is that to get involved in research, it doesn't have to be with a faculty member. You know, if you know a doctoral student who's doing, you know, cool things or interested in similar, you know, topics, mm-hmm. it's like you can go work with them. Yeah. You know, you can seek them out. Yeah, so definitely. Tell me more about your research. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, I mean, it, it definitely helps if, like, the people that you like are your professors and what have you. Um, but it, was, it wasn't it was going to happen for me in that way. And so I sort of looked 
to different people and different avenues to sort of make that happen for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's like come out out of the box of academia. Mm-hmm. You know, you have all these resources of staff yes. members. Mm-hmm. So yeah, don't overlook a staff person. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so then you did all of this through McNair. Yes. So do you want to talk a little bit about McNair? Yeah. So um, McNair has. So it's one of the trio programs. Yes. Uh, Robert E. McNair, was it post-baccalaureate program? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all, all the words. Um, is, is named after Robert E. McNair, who was one of the astronauts who um, died in the Challenger. Um, apparently was an amazing man, like played the saxophone in space. There's a cool picture if you look it up. <laughs> He's literally in space with the saxophone. Um, but is specifically designed for sort of underrepresented um, folks that are that are students to sort of um, achieve up to like the the PhD level of edu- of education mm-hmm. uh, within like a a ten year gap from after they graduate from um, their undergrad institution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean the piece of like the data uh, attached to that. Um, so if low low income first generation students only. Only 10% of those who start a bachelor's degree graduate within four years. Mm. So now we take that small fraction of a group of students and now let's put them into PhD programs. Right. So then how many of those, you know, then go on to even apply for a PhD program? Get started for it. Yeah, start it. Um, and then PhDs are really hard to get. I mean, sometimes it takes people up to eight years, you know, to finally get their PhD, their dissertation published. Um, So that's, you know, it becomes a a much um, sadder story or, Mm -hmm. I mean, we could say elite, but it's not, Yeah, it's not elite. It's It's definitely like a filtration (laughs) process, the way that it's sort of like structured. And it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. So how does McNair, how is McNair helping you or supporting you to eventually earn your PhD? Um, they definitely sort of like are additional cheerleaders that I have. Um, shout out to Trisha. She was like the McNair coordinator before she moved into like the I think research or something like that. Like coordinator for that. Uh-huh. Um, but no, why she was like my McNair coordinator. Um, <laughs> yeah. and she was like specifically for like the seniors that were like about to graduate because I'm technically a part of, like the first cohort. Um, that will graduate. <clears throat> so um, that's some pressure. Mm-hmm. Well, it's exciting. <laughs> yeah. You know, terrified. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I sort of once like all the research you know, that I did, like the literature review that I did was sort of over. And now I'm just like, oh, my God, like, what do I do next? And I was very stressed about it because now it's just like graduate school. And like at that point, like the only amount of graduate school I ever thought about was like going to going to school for accounting mm-hmm. <laughs> and getting my master's yeah. in accounting for mm-hmm. a year, two years is this part time. Yeah. Um and so I was just like, this is still not what I want to do. Um what, you know, and I definitely want to do more work that I've been doing at the women's center. Like how do is there a way to merge the two? Like I don't even know. I'm so confused. Um so she kinda threw out like public policy. Let's do that. That sounds cool. Mm-hmm. I'm like, bet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know And I, it's related to accounting. Yeah, it has, like, there's, Mm -hmm. like, different, like, um, definite economics. That's, like, part of it, too, Mm -hmm. and sort of, like, 
you have to consider that when you're talking about like policy making and all those things um it's definitely a, a uh, important component but and then i also i was looking at different public policy programs and i found one that also combined like women gender studies or sexuality studies um at george washington um and i didn't have the opportunity to sort of have a women gender studies minor um let alone a major here mm-hmm. um so i was just like oh this is a, a good program and it's it's kind of rare like that pairing together is kind mm-hmm. of rare. Mm-hmm. So I definitely made sure that that was like my top choice. Um, and I also apply for all the other schools. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so you're, is this a, a master's program? Yes. Or a peach? Okay. Yeah, so I'll get like a master's, master's of arts in like public policy with a concentration in women, gender, sexuality studies. I got in and they gave me money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you were accepted to multiple places and given yes. money at other multiple places. Yeah. Okay, so let's list out what schools you were accepted to and how much money you were offered. Yeah, so I got into Duke, Georgetown, George Washington, American University, University of Maryland College Park, and William & Mary. Um, I didn't get into William & Mary because they sort of suspended their admission because of different structural things they were trying to rework like they were trying to figure a lot of things out yeah. there were like low enrollment rates and all those things so i i don't i probably would have got in but i don't know they just you know refunded yeah 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 <laughs> the the application feedback um duke didn't give me a lot of money duke is also private school so lol to that um and i got a decent amount of money from um georgetown and um american um but george washington was and University of Maryland, too. They also offered me, like, a GA position, a graduate assistantship position. Um, but George Washington was my top choice, and they also gave me the most money. Um, I was able to get my first year is sort of paid off, and then my second year up to 20000 is paid off. Um, so I'm going to have to finesse the last twelve, <laughs> 12000 because it's very expensive mm-hmm. at George Washington. But the first year, mm-hmm. I don't have that sort of financial structure in terms of tuition. Yeah, and I think that's, too, it's the time to apply for other positions, you know, GA positions or other scholarships or funding opportunities. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think that's sometimes people think, oh, I can't afford graduate school. Oh, it's expensive. (laughs) (laughs) But it doesn't mean it's off the table. Right. So A lot of people, I've heard people say that they had to finance with loans, which is an option. I try my best to avoid that because I already have so many loans as is. Um, so it was definitely like a blessing to be able to have all this because like typically you don't really get that type of funding for a master's level mm-hmm. degree. Mm-hmm. Um, the government yeah. act like they don't have any enough, enough money. So yeah, 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 it's definitely difficult and to be able to have that amount of money um, up front was just amazing. Yeah, and it shows their investment in you. Mm-hmm. Like they're they're gonna want you to succeed. Yeah, and also I will say that there is uh, one of the fellowships that I got. Um, they gave me a t- uh, tuition remission, um, and then I also have like uh, a McNair fellowship through George Washington. So, in terms of McNair, like there, it's it's so recognized that people sort of it's kind of like being I don't want to say a celebrity. But, you know, that's like a, a definite marker on your on your resume or on your signature block in your email to say that you're a McNair scholar. Like it, it carries a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. It's known in um, academia. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's something it's like if you're accepted into that program, that it means you're at a certain level. Mm-hmm. 
whether it be commitment, you know, um, intellectual capabilities, et cetera. Yeah, VIP treatment mm-hmm. <laughs> if you have McNair. Mm-hmm. And then even with McNair, too, they we provide you with assistance with the applications, the GRE, mm-hmm. the writing tutorials. You know, so it's like if you've never written a literature review, no worries. Yep. They'll help you. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and you mentioned never being out of the country before and Mm -hmm. so that was why military was appealing to you yes but now you've been out of country i have i went on a asb which is alternative service break trip to guatemala for gender issues was fun yes what did you do there (laughs) um so many things we you know we flew out there we were able to sort of mingle with i don't say mingle with the locals that sounds elitist but um definitely learn about different things we learn a lot about the history of guatemala um and they just there they had like a whole 36 year civil war um and that ended in 96 so it was not even that old right um and so there is major um trauma within the within the country regarding that um and there's so much violence against women um we didn't even talk about like the violence against like lgbtq plus folks um I, I I wanted to ask those questions, but I didn't know if it was sort of getting off track. Mm-hmm. But being trans is a gender identity, so I probably should have asked about that. But right. there are a lot of different things. But we also learn about powerful women within Guatemala that are also sort of trailblazers and um, that are trying to make a difference within Guatemala. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a really good thing to see. Um, so it was just an amazing amazing time the people that I went with were absolutely fabulous people um and all of our reflections they weren't like oh I thought this was nice like we were all like very critical and intentional Mm -hmm. with how we were reflecting and any sort of not debate or maybe like any disagreements or dissenting opinions it wasn't like aggressive or anything like super you're wrong or anything like that it was like okay i see where you're coming from but here's where i'm coming from and sort of seeing that mutual understanding right 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 and so how are women in guatemala because you use the term like trailblazing Mm -hmm. different than the women in the united states like those those movements or well i think that they're the movements in guatemala are sort of inherently intersectional Mm-hmm. Um, intersectional being that um, we all have a lot of identities and we all so show up in multiple ways within those identities and they intersect with systems in different ways and that impacts our experiences with how we sort of live our lives with each other and all those things. Um, and so within Guatemala, because a lot of these are a lot of these women where the violence is happening, we didn't even talk about like the East Coast, which is where like a lot of um, Afro diaspora folks live mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. we didn't even touch that which is probably like some sort of anti-blackness thing going on there right there's yeah another layer yeah, yeah. so many layers <laughs> yeah. but we just sort of focused on like the the poor and indigenous population like the indigenous folks make up like majority of the population mm-hmm. there but they're also like the disenfranchised mm-hmm. population there uh, which is different if you're talking about like the united states in terms of black people because black mm-hmm. people are like 13 percent of the population Mm -hmm. um and white people are the majority technically um but it's it's flipped right but it's still like oppression there right so a lot of the work that is done um is focused on poor indigenous women which are like three you know identities that are 
definitely dehumanized on a lot of different levels. Um, and it's, and it's also too, when you consider Guatemala is a quote unquote developing or underdeveloped country, I don't really know how they're sort of labeled, um, where they're just trying to survive. Um, and so there's, you know, there's a lot of pressure, not pressure, but emphasis on like literacy and sort of making sure that people are having practices that are sustainable because they also have like environmental mm-hmm. issues. Um, whereas the United States, it's sort of, um, we have this facade that we have it together mm-hmm. um, until you ask certain people mm-hmm. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. you get a completely different story. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, too, like with a lot of women in these movements are college educated, which is also like another a bit of a privileged identity to be mm-hmm. able to say, I went to this university, I learned these things, now I'm woke. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and access to information. Yeah. I mean, that is a huge privilege. Yeah. So, I mean, at NC State, you have access to, like, an unlimited amount, mm-hmm. you know, of information where the people who don't, you know, say, indigenous, oh, sorry, um, indigenous groups or what have you, like you, there's no way. Yeah. Like you can be on the same plane. Yeah. And it's like that using your privilege of even just access to information mm-hmm. to share that information. Yeah, and then too, like you know, you see that in like it's a lot of scholarship around like gender issues, but you see more so like within like Latin America in general. Um, and yeah, that's part of Latin America. They speak Spanish. Um, and also different indigenous languages and all those things, but you see a lot more like grassroots movements um, because it's sort of, I, I see grassroots movements as more, they're like more community based. Like they're mm-hmm. about the people like on the ground. Mm-hmm. And then you sort of see a, a flip with us or more developed countries, quote unquote, um, where they're able to use these big words in all these dissertations, which is not mm-hmm. a bad thing. Mm-hmm. But then even those dissertations are very inaccessible to the public who, mm-hmm aren't able to comprehend that at the level that you're able to. Right, right. Well, even the language. Yeah. The words. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The writing structure. So many. What is a pedagogy? I still <laughs> need to look that up. <laughs> and um, so one of the things that you did want to cover is, like, the the theme of risk-taking as a yes. low-income first-generation college student. Um, yeah, because when we started, it's like, you don't have space to take risks. At all. Like, yeah. <laughs> what is space? <laughs> yeah, and a risk is, like, when you have literal like, no support network, mm-hmm. you know, so if something fails, then you're falling. Yeah, hard. it's all on you. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, why don't you talk to us about... Yeah, how you took your first risk, like how you actually ended up doing that and how it worked out. And um, even if there you took some risks and it didn't work out well. Mm. Um, I mean, definitely like having that mental breakdown with like a, a risk. It was just like, how dare I sort of go back on the original plan? Um, taking risks when you're like in this position is, is difficult um, because you have a lot riding on you um, and you have sort of unspoken obligations um that you sort of had to meet to the people in your life and it's not so much to say that they don't care about you that they don't want you to succeed but success is sort of viewed with a very limited understanding Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and that makes for a lot of stress and to feel overwhelmed and frustrated and all those things Um, yeah yeah i mean that's so how did you educate your parents 
Um, I, mean, I didn't did say nothing. To, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say anything until mm-hmm. I got into grad school. Mm-hmm. I, I'm one of those people. I don't like to talk about things unless they've like actually happened. So mm-hmm. I I can say like, hey, it depends on who I'm talking to. I might I might tell my friends that I applied for this thing and I get, didn't get it, mm-hmm. but I won't tell my my parents or like you know my mentors and things of that nature that I applied for something until I got it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, <laughs> so why is that? I. I, I guess it's probably, like, a, a worry thing. I don't want to worry my parents with, like, mm-hmm. if I got, like, 10 rejection letters and, like, one acceptance. Mm-hmm. I don't want to worry my parents with mm-hmm. the 10 because I got into that one. Right. Whereas right. I can and tell my And one is all fr- you needed. Right. right. And mm-hmm. I can just tell my friends about all of the 11. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's lower stakes. Like, they don't have that expectation. They're just like, I just want you to be happy, boo. And, and that's mm-hmm. sort of uh, what I need and, and at that time, especially if I got, like, 10 in a row. Right. Right, right, right. Yeah, there's not as much of an emotional, um, um, uh, like, connection. Mm-hmm. Um, because, yeah, if you fail at something um, for a family, you know, it's depending upon you. It's totally different than a friend who's like, yeah, I failed eight times. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Not saying, once again, that my parents don't love me. Um, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> but it's, it's just a different, so, it's just a different thing. And, mm-hmm. like, just having, like, a support system like at the women's center and like just different especially like women of color like the women of color in my life have been amazing for me um and so just having like that support system in different areas um has made it so that if i do feel like i feel fine um even though i, I still stress about it because that's just my virgo energy mm-hmm. <laughs> i like to stress mm-hmm. about things that i can't control mm-hmm. but just having that support system in different areas has made it that much easier mm-hmm. now did you not take a risk that in hindsight you wish you had mm. wow that's a heavy question <laughs> I don't know yeah. um yeah I don't know I guess and I don't know because I don't really believe in like regrets anymore mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because I've learned things the way that I needed to learn them yeah. even though it's kind of like wow I should I could have did this, but, yeah. you know, I w- fine, I've yeah. also wouldn't have learned certain things mm-hmm. if I hadn't done, made these decisions. Right. Um, so at this point, no. Good. But yeah, yeah. I, you know, I sort of am making peace with the, the decisions that I make because I'm sort of learning from those losses mm-hmm. in order to, like, make that or turn that into, like, more victories for me. Right. Um. So, yeah. Right, right, right. Um. Oh, back to, didn't you win other awards? What did you do at the, like, the three-minute thesis competition? <laughs> so what other awards have you won? Yeah. I think you've not told us all yeah. about them. I'm I'm very good at um, embracing my victories. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I went to, I will say that at first I did not, not even at first, I didn't want to participate because I just felt like. You didn't want to participate in what? It was yeah. a, a three-minute um thesis competition at the at the it was like a McNair conference at, at UNCG so uh, McNair programs from state um, UNC couldn't be there um, but at UNCG their program um, failed with state I think um, but you know a couple different McNair programs from different schools came together and we sort of we you know, watched a panel discussion um, and all these things they were talking about like grad schools and like getting the PhD how stressful it is some of them are some of the people that were talking to us are in like that doctoral stage, and so they're like experiencing these things hand, you know, firsthand. Um, and then close to the end of the program, there was space for a three-minute thesis competition. Um, like I said, I did not want to participate in this. Um, I was sort of 
politely pushed by <laughs> Trisha Jackson and um, Dr. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Chapman to do mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. So what was it? What did you have to do? I basically had to give like a, a three minutes or less spiel on the research that I had been doing, um, which was the the Je- the Jezebel the Virgin um, research paper that mm-hmm. I did. Um, and so I had to, you know, write something up, send it to Dr. Chapman. She looked over it. She gave me comments. I redid that, gave me more feedback. Um, and so then I had something to read off when I did my presentation and then I ended up getting first place and I won a printer. Yay! That's real. <laughs> yes. That is real. It is in my apartment right now as yeah, we speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And why did you win? Like, did they, like, what were the, like, the rubric what did they look for? What was valued in that? Um, so, and we also had to have a, well, we didn't have to have a slide. Um, it was highly recommended to have mm-hmm. a slide. But all the things that I put on my slide, I kind of, like, touched on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of spoke clearly. I think I spoke a little too fast because that's what I do when I'm nervous. But um, but I sort of laid out all the things, um, made it so that people wanted to learn more. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of head nods and like, mm-hmm, yes, girl, <laughs> while I was speaking. And it was kind of like throwing mm-hmm. me off because I wasn't prepared. Um, but I can't remember all of the all the rubrics, but mm-hmm. it wasn't like a, a harsh grading system. It was kind of like mm-hmm. a yes or no, did they do this, did they yeah. not? Um, yeah. And so I got, you know, points Yay. for stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, 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 good. Now. Um, oh, and Indira got second place. Yes, <laughs> yes. NC State swept. Yes. <laughs> um, so to be your parent. Um, so what are you going to do after your graduate degree? What kind of job can you get with the master's in public policy? Um, I imagine I could do some, I think I'm going to take a break between getting my master's and PhD because PhD is a lot. Um, and I'm also tired and I, I've been in in school for a long time. I kind (laughs) of want to like take a break and work for a little bit before Mm -hmm. I sort of commit myself to that process because it's a it's a commitment, not just a degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, a lifestyle. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I think I see myself doing, like, some sort of advocacy work around, like, comprehensive sex education, sort of mandating that um, at the K through 12 level. And also, like, just revamping the curriculum in general um, is very, like, um, STI-based and, you know, use condoms, which is important. But there's also no conversation around, like, how systems impact sexuality. Um, and I think that people, a lot of people think that sexuality is one of those things that's completely removed from oppression in like systems. And that's Mm -hmm. not the case at all. Mm -hmm. Um, and also too, like just having an understanding of gender identities and like sexual orientation, like people don't talk about that. Like in the South, like they, it's, we don't, North Carolina is not man. I can't remember, but they don't really talk about like sexual orientation. There so some... that's not part of the curriculum in a lot of the sex ed programs in schools, right? Like some some states, like it's not required for the information to be medically accurate, which is a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, some states, um, there's no regulation around like uh, promoting religion. Um, some states, um, you they put like a negative spin on like being within the LGBTQ plus community. So is very heteronormative and all those things. I think North Carolina, they only want to focus on sex within the context of a heterosexual marriage, which is also problematic. Mm-hmm. So it's the curriculum itself, while it's important to have comprehensive sex education, the way that it's done is also terrible. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, the method of it? Yes. Like how it puts it out? Not even just the method, uh, but just what's taught. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, because I think part of it's like the message and the messenger. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, because it's the only place. Because <clears throat> where else do people get their sex education? It's the, like the gym <laughs> the gym teacher. <laughs> yeah, but I think that's like if it's, that's the only structured. Mm-hmm. And then the other is like self-taught or media yeah. or friends. Yeah, or... internet, people who don't know what they're talking about. It's, and that's just public schools. So we, mm-hmm. you, there's no, you can't really regulate, regulate mm-hmm. uh, private schools because mm-hmm. they're private. Like they, right. you know, they're kind of free from that sort of chokehold. Right. And so why should there be um, sex education like you want? Like what's the... Why is there a need? Have they found that the current curriculum has issues? Is it leading to, like, what's the result of it? Of just having comprehensive sex sex education Mm -hmm. in general? Mm -hmm. Well, for one thing, um, states that have abstinence-only-based education, sex education versus comprehensive, comprehensive states have lower rates in comparison um, of teenage pregnancy and, like, SEI rates. They're, like... Um, lower rates in comprehensive states versus abstinence-only states. So that's one thing. But I think that, too, there is... It's not pleasure-centered, uh, like so there's no real talk about masturbation. If it is, it's only talked about for the guys in the room, which is, like, unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and, too, when you talk about pleasure, that also interacts with or disrupts capitalism because, you know capitalism it wants us to sort of work until we die and then have kids so they can work till they die and so you don't really have time for yourself and so like the the concept of self-care in that way is sort Mm of um you're getting in the way of work Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you're sort of disrupting that system too um and and people just don't know about their bodies like and people are sort of shamed to like have different experiences with their bodies and so um while sex education has some benefits you know, it has a lot of detriment to how it's taught and, mm-hmm. and how it's framed and, and what teachers understand about sex and sexuality. And it, it becomes like people don't really know about their bodies until they're like in their 40s and 50s when mm-hmm. we could have been figuring these things out when we're like 10 years old. Yeah. And how does this resu- like relate to the Me Too, Me Too movement where now there's all of these, you know, mm-hmm. women coming forward saying, yeah, my I did not have control over my body. Yeah. Or things were done and said to me about my body that now with this movement, I can now share that I never shared before. Yeah, I think um, part of, and I guess it should be called like a different type of name instead of like comprehensive sex education because these things are, shouldn't be sort of isolated to just sexuality and sex. Um, the concept of consent in general it's just if you want another word from it's just permission. Mm-hmm. Um, we ask permission for things every day, um, and so that's one of those muscle memory things that children should know, mm-hmm. and that becomes built. It's kind of like math. Like a lot of people don't really know about consent until they're in college, but a lot of people don't go to college, right? Um, and so it's kind of like teaching algebra to someone who hasn't learned how to add yet. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so that muscle memory hasn't been built to the point where they could work up to algebra. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same thing for consent. And so, um, I mean, consent is still be, I mean, that's what's being talked about is because yeah. people don't know what consent is. Yeah. And it's so much, it's not a gray area within that too, mm-hmm. that people don't like to talk about. And so while there is like, yes, and enthusiastic, yes, and no, and 
is is this person like shying away like what is their you know nonverbal cues a lot of that sort of gets binarized too and there's so much that happens within the gray area that people don't like to talk about and work through um which i think also is a part of like pleasure-centered sex education is like how do you navigate this sort of gray area because a lot of things happens in the gray area like we just said like people were complex Mm -hmm. um and so Mm -hmm. to like put this sort of binarized understanding on people just messes everything up yeah and i mean even going back to how you said like the systems Mm -hmm. impact is you know um a person of privilege or power interacting with a person without that much privilege or power Mm -hmm. you know and that dynamic of just our systems approach yeah especially when you're talking about sexual assault and like specifically black women like black women don't really get believed when we talk about or not not me it's not my experience but Mm -hmm. when women black women come out about some sort of sexual abuse or sexual assault like when they're not believed and um especially when you're talking about like a black man who we just like we don't want to put another black man in jail or all these things. And so those things get really complicated. Uh, and then you get into, like, how do we hold people accountable? What does accountability look like? Uh-huh. Um, transformative justice? I don't know. Like, it, it gets it gets really tricky. Yeah. And you're going to figure that out in two years at George Washington University. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> I, I try to – my hope is that my way of doing things is more preventative rather than reactionary. Um, I, I don't like – try to do damage control mm-hmm. it doesn't really control it like the damage is done and how do we heal from that is sort of the next question but i'd rather sort of keep a thousand kids from sexually assaulting other people than you know having to rehabilitate a thousand folks who have sexually assaulted folks right 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 no for sure now what would you what's your last piece of advice before we end here last piece to of advice. trio <clears throat> students current past present future um make sure you have a a bomb support system that's really important um and your spaces can look like anything um like i, I i'm a black woman and i don't personally for me one of my spaces that I one of the spaces I don't go to is just the African American Cultural Center and that's because of comfort level like I've built relationships with people at the Women's Center so that's my space so I always try to find your space and that could look like a, a variety of different things but make sure the people in your space are always sort of rooting for you and will hold you accountable will tell you the truth and will always make space for your your um, authenticity so yeah it's like find your home yes. not not the home people tell you should be your home yeah Definitely. Find your uh, emotional home. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Your, your pack, your whatnot. Well, thank you so much, Kalia. We no um, are excited to hear about um, what George Washington has in store for you. So we'll have you come back in a year or so. Okay, I can do that. <laughs> okay. Hopefully I have enough money to travel back. Yeah, yeah I'll stop that. <laughs> you will. TRIO Student Support Services Program and Student Support Services STEM are federally funded college retention and completion programs. These programs focus on academic, personal, and career support for under-resourced undergraduate students. At TRIO SSS and SSS STEM, our goal is helping our students reach their goals. We are currently accepting new students to our program. Apply today. Go to www.ncsu.edu to learn more about Student Support Services at NC State.